Yeah. Yeah. I like that beat. Mm-hmm. Trying to get me in the mood, man. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Well, I am. Well, this is Geology on the Rocks. I'm your host, James the Geologist. And I am Brian Baggett. And we wanted to uh, try something out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, uh, a cheers to you, Brian, and to our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> is that? We've made it to episode eight. I we- mean, that that deserves a, a clink sound I, of some kind. <laughs> hey, no, that that wasn't a well. It was a sound, but it was actually me actually clinking. Oh, you're that, that was natural. Yeah, no, oh, that was that was natural. Okay. It was the uh, the those those mugs, nice frosty mug. Oh yes, yes. Hmm. <laughs> but like you said, uh, we are back. We are on episode eight. Uh, you absolutely named this one. Asking you shall receive. I like what you did there. <laughs> so this how- is the first episode I named. James is normally the <laughs> the wise one. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm, Witty. No, yeah. Sometimes. Only that, like I said the last time, when we were having a hard, hard time coming up with a, a title, it was just a matter of, it was like, I, I just have to sit here and it just randomly comes to me. So, yeah. Oh, but, but this one's named. I don't have to do it. It made my job a lot easier. So, uh, how have you been, sir? It's been another week. Uh, yeah, it has. I, uh, I'm... Uh, you may be a little jealous. I'm feeling very free because uh, all last week was something I had prepared. Like since May, I've been working on this one project for work, and we finally had the week long risk assessment. So last week was pretty stressful, but a risk assessment for a dam in like South Central Texas, and it's complete. Damn. I now have so much off my plate. So I'm I'm kind of celebrating tonight with this podcast. So that that was also like. A little selfish, like I, I wanted to clink with you because of that. <laughs> oh no, no, I <laughs> but, get it. But yeah, so if you're in South Central Texas, you're doomed. I'm sorry, we we deemed the dam. It's it's gonna go. It's gonna go. Which and, and... no, I'm just kidding. I can't say. <laughs> and, and and it is not. It is fine. But <laughs> but yeah, I think I said what it was. Oh. Well, maybe maybe you're doomed if you're listening to us in South Texas. <laughs> <laughs> well, my week has been a little bit opposite of that. Uh, I think uh-huh. all last week, while well, I mean, it was stressful for me as well. Uh, I spent about eight hours a day reading and writing. And after about five days, I looked down or I looked at my computer screen and I had about two pages written. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing is, is it was a it was an argument paper. So we had to take a, or a position paper. We had to take a position and we had to use these like three, uh, five texts that we've been reading through. The teacher even said that shorter papers are considerably, I guess, more difficult to articulate than long papers yeah. can kind of like build out this argument. I don't know. And then the, the texts we were reading were very dense and I survived, so it ended up being four pages, and I successfully managed to. Uh, I uh, okay, so it, I took the position of uh, the curriculum and how it shouldn't be strict uh, in the application mm. with uh, de- with regards to degree plans, and then I kind of I I took it my own spin on it, and I compared the curriculum to the layers of Earth. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> so, like the different spheres, I was like, think of it as the layers, and then we can, you know. So, like, I I argued it in the fact that uh that you that you first you need to know like what it's made up of. So I was like, well, that's like the chemical differentiation of Earth and the crust, the core, and the mantle. 
And then I was like, well, then you need to think about the forces acting on it. So that was more like the the lithosphere, the geosphere, uh, the meso. No, not the even. Blah, 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 blah. Now yeah. I'm, I'm stumbling <laughs> over my words. No, but like so, like you know, it's the forces acting upon it. And I was like, well, and and depending on how you're looking at it or explaining it, will give you different results. And then you need to look at it as a whole, kind of. So. I don't know. I was like, <laughs> and it took up like a page of my paper. So I was like, yes. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we decided this episode, we're going to do it kind of like last time rather than ask for questions. Uh, Brian and I, we just, we texted each other where we talked about it and we were just going to talk about four random subjects that were like, huh, that's interesting. Let's talk about it. So the, 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 the four subjects that we're going to discuss are going to be pegmatites. We're going to talk about uh, the Coriolis effect. We're going to talk a little bit about rock hounding. And then depending on how saucy and uh, and kind of the, the mood we're in, we'll see how far we get into tidal forces. So and then we're going to get into a little bit about uh, the, that freaking rocks. So yeah. we shall begin our conversation with pegmatites. So, Brian, what are pegmatites or in another word, what is a pegmatite? So a pegmatite is a portion. Well, let me put it this way. It's an igneous body of rock that has formed that has larger crystals than you would find in a normal granitic body. So granitic bodies are made of uh, phaneritic rocks. They're coarse grained, but pegmatites take it a step further. I think it like anything over 2.5 centimeters, about an inch is considered a, a pegmatitic texture of an igneous rock. So these pegmatites are filled with large crystals. That's really what it's so a little what bit defined. larger, yeah, so larger than what you, so like whenever you go downtown Fort Worth and you look at the, the any of the buildings oh, yeah. downtown, right? So those are, those are, I guess, more just your regular granitic intrusive rocks. But these, what you're yeah. saying, so these are going to be like at least like the individual mineral grains, should, they should be, they look like what one of your finger joints, like for, I mean, that's about an inch, 2.5. Yeah, exactly. So they're, they're ones that like, not only you can visibly see each crystal, but I mean, you could see them across the room. They're some of the big, like, you know, you see museum samples of different minerals. A lot of those come from pegmatite. And it's because they have certain factors, which we'll get into, that allow these minerals to grow much larger than they would under normal, I say normal, general circumstances once a melt starts to cool and solidify and crystallize. One thing that I do want to point out that the word pegmatite, I, I had to look this up. I throw the word around all the time, but it actually just means to bind together. Oh, and really? I was like, wow, that that is not what I thought it would mean. And it actually talked about like the uh, graphic or granoblastic texture of the feldspars and quartz minerals that form in these melts. And they, they crystallize and they almost look laced together. So okay. that's, that's where it comes, bind together. Um, well, I mean, because are they... Now, uh, pegmatites, they aren't my forte or like, I, I just, I know of them because we examine some at field camp and, and yeah. just in the textbooks, like you hear about it and sometimes you see grain sizes, but I mean, does it, so it's, so it's, it differs in the fact that it's going to be like porphyroblastic, right? And that just means like two distinct yeah. grain sizes. So they're all uniformly just going to be like these large grains, right? Yeah. They, they like basically are put in a space and a situation that they can just grow until either the the chemistry doesn't allow it to anymore 
where the space runs out. Okay. And luckily they're, so we'll get into where they are. A fun fact, we talked about like a grain size thing, which is really what you would, a geologist would look at a rock and see large crystals, know it's igneous and be like, okay, that's, that's a pegmatite or it's, it's pegmatitic. Some of these pegmatites that like there's one in um, South Dakota in the Edda mine. Some of the crystals, spodumene, which is a, a lithium-bearing pyroxene, Fancy. are over 42 feet long. And, and like a crystal, one crystal is <laughs> that, 42 feet long. And then, <laughs> yeah, I also read on that one, it, it, and not just 40, it's like five feet in diameter. So it's... Yeah. <laughs> to give it kind of like, like a, a volume. That's <laughs> Yeah. It, it, I mean, you have like longer than school bus crystals. Like, I don't know how long a school bus is, but I'm guessing it's... So isn't there one also like in Mexico? Like I, I know there's a cave underwater where it was, it's like really hot and it was underwater for the longest time. You have like these huge calcite crystals where they, right? Or is they're that, gypsum. Oh, gypsum. Yeah. But they, yeah. I mean, they're massive. It's and it's very enormous. Yeah. It's like this. It, it yeah. looks like a, if we, I don't know, we're like an ant going into a, uh, <laughs> yeah. a geode, right? It's, they're freaking well, awesome. Yeah, you see like the pictures. I, I think we've both seen the same picture of this like guy, and you don't even notice the guy in the picture because he's so small compared to these gypsum crystals. So you just look like you're looking at this. Uh, I don't know a, a gym in a in a museum, but then you realize, oh wait, that's a human. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the, like that is still considered pegmatitic. That's like the extreme end. But sorry, my cat is coughing i don't know what it is um <laughs> so if you hear something weird it is not me doing anything strange so yeah uh but the other really nice thing is it's like we talked about quartz and feldspar we've touched on this a few times in these in our episodes those are very common minerals in the earth's crust basically like what you get when you have a, a basic granite because you have quartz and feldspars but what pegmatites do is they are formed and they have really large crystals and it's not formed due to just a slow rate of crystallization. It's because this usually is like the last stages of magma crystallization and it finds its ways in fractures or like along margins of other granitic bodies that have cooled and have created tension cracks. So this other magma, the, the late magma, will come in and the water that water is inherently in most magmas. But minerals, like all the ones we've talked about, silicates, we've talked about Bowen, those other than like hornblende and like your micas don't really want to have water in their structure. So water gets continuously pushed out and back into the melt. What happens is the water, along with incompatible elements and trace elements, gets super saturated in the melt. And at these last stages, is where the pegmatites form. And so because it's superheated, it also takes a while to cool, but it allows these various minerals to grow that you normally wouldn't find in a granitic melt. And it's because they can, like, like some of these have ions, like the incompatible ions that are uh, super saturated in this are like boron, beryllium, strontium, barium, all the rare earths, uh, zirconium, niobium, lithium, thorium, those are generally what you'd find in these. And so they're going to have these really complex structures. All sorts of other cations can be in different spaces in them. And water is a, is a component of this. So you're at the end of the rope, at the end of these magma chains that you, you have, the last thing to cool is going to have just this exotic suite. 
of minerals. And that really, they're my favorite thing about geology is that like, I, I want to find cool, pretty stuff. And <laughs> like, that, that really, <laughs> yeah. And that's where you like other than there are other things like metamorphism can do this and uh, metasomatism and like hydro hydrothermal systems, but pegmatites are where it's at. That's kind of where, where it begins in my head. So, yeah, so I mean, um, like, it's with that water, right? So the and I, you alluded to it earlier, due to that that low viscosity. I mean, like, and it's able to flow through throughout the system, but increasing the ion migration, right? So you're constantly yeah that it's it's taking these ions from the other place, but it's allowing these crystals to grow really large, and then at the end of it, then you get not what minerals that you typically get, like you're just your your plain old quartzes, right? Yeah, yeah, you're you're totally right. So when the when the water's like superheated and it allows that magma to stay heated, all the ions are like excited. <laughs> and so like um, I had in my notes, like I'm looking at I look at my notes sometime, and I'm like, why did I write that? That's ridiculous. <laughs> I was like, think of it as mating. So I thought of like these like primal humans just. Like, oh my God, I got to find a mate like now. Yeah. And that's, that's what happens is these ions move around so freely and quickly because they're heated. So when things are like, you can see that when like you boil water, right? Like you see things moving around a lot more easily and the lower viscosity of water compared to a normal granitic melt, which we, we talked about our love of the word viscosity oh, yeah. on a few episodes ago. Normally a, a felsic melt, a high quartz melt, which is usually a granitic melt, is very viscous. So it doesn't flow very well. But the water in this case makes it low low viscosity. And so what happens is the crystals can form relatively immediately and they start forming throughout the entire process of cooling. And that's why you have these elongated, really beautiful prismatic crystals. So there's like I I feel like there's not a lot of people that realize like below the surface, there's, there's an abundance of water. I think there's in, in a lot of these, yeah. there's a lot of groundwater. So, and then also that water kind of acts as an insulator too. So it's, it, it, it allows it to stay, it cools it even slower than a normal magma chamber. Right. Yeah. Or am I crazy yeah, exactly. in that? Okay. No, um, you're right. Because it's, it's part of the magma. Like you don't have a, a heavily contrasting temp change. Yeah. So these things are already like, usually they're buried below surface. I, I mean, obviously they are, but I don't know how deep. So there are, they already have some heat component, but the water that's in the melt is going to allow that superheating to happen. Whereas a water table somewhere else that like a granitic melt might just interact with, or like we talked about, like pillow basalt, that, ca- that caused those things to cool really quickly and rapidly and there was no more melt to come out. And so this is almost the opposite of that. Water is playing a different role and it's, it's allowing these beautiful things to happen. So I, we've talked about what makes this so different. I've talked about a lot of various minerals and I'm sure someone out there listening somewhere has seen or heard or owns like tourmaline jewelry. And that's one of the more complicated minerals that occur in these pegmatites. Usually if you have a pegmatite, you, you have tourmaline growing. And it's a boron silicate. So boron is not usually readily available in a granitic melt. You don't you may see trace tourmaline inside of other crystals of like quartz or whatever, but for the most part they're they're gonna form in these pegmatites or metamorphic rocks. And because of all the different elements that get pushed out of the melt and they're suspended in this heated water, they start crystallizing. And so you can have all these crazy colors of tourmaline. You know, I, I like the uh, the watermelon tourmaline 
where it's like yeah, yeah, green to pink. It's, it's so awesome. I know, and yeah, and that that sounds that's actually the variety of elb. How do you say that? Elbite, elbate. I don't, I don't know how to. <laughs> it's <laughs> really, yeah. <laughs> but it's yes. it's a sodic, a sodic tourmaline, and what happens is that has a solid solution series, like we've talked about with like the feldspars, right? Like you can have all different chemical compositions on like a sodium to calcium solid solution series. So you have different percentages of both of those cations that forms with the magnesium. And so then you have these trace elements that come in and they will color these. So iron really is a big player in all the different colors you see out there of tourmaline. And I'll get on quartz in a minute. I'm, I promise I won't go too long on this, but really, so you'll have like your super saturated melt with iron that's been pushed out, that's been carried in this water. And you'll have the black tourmaline, which is shrill. I don't, God, that's such a weird. It's like I, a, a rural, like a rural shrill. Yeah, <laughs> maybe that's what we and should I'm sure that's title this one. Name. I, I was, I was about to make fun of it, but I'm sure it's someone's name. Because really, like, if you find a mineral and you, it's a new mineral, you can name it whatever you want, and everyone's got a huge ego, so they just name it after themselves. Usually, is what happens. <laughs> I don't. Sorry, shrill. <laughs> a rural shrill. <laughs> But yeah, so like you'll have this iron and it forms just solid black formalin. And as you go down through time with this pegmatite cooling, iron will start being depleted. And that's where iron will still be a trace element in like other formalines like in Dicolite. Just beautiful, (laughs) bright blue in Dicolite. (laughs) A bright blue form of of formalin. And it's starts changing it just because iron's in there as a trace element interacting with the boron silicate uh, chemical structure. And so you have all these others. There's red, rubellite, tourmaline. That's caused by manganese contaminants. Green is chrome. And so what happens is you, you start down this line of like depleting the melt. So, what, so you are basically left with almost a clear tourmaline crystal. And those are going to form at the center of this pegmatite because as the pegmatite cools, it's going to cool along the fracture walls. So you're in this fracture, right? Like however big it, it might be, God, it might be like eight feet, whatever. Along the margins, you're going to have more quartz and stuff crystallized, but then all the melt's going to start being super saturated. Like I said before, with all these weird elements, these trace elements like boron in the case of formalene, and it's going to start towards the center. You're going to start this transition of, okay, now I'm crystallizing the really beautiful, like the dark tourmalines and then into the really beautiful ones. And then at the center, you have really pure tourmaline. It doesn't have a lot of the trace elements in it. So on the, so, so it's, is it, it's yeah. so what basically what you're saying is it's growing out from, so it needs that substrate to that. It's crystallizing. So when it finds on the fractures, I guess what you're saying is that it's on either side of this fracture that it's growing on. It's growing towards the center, going from dark. And then in the middle, why it would be middle, it would be clear is because that's where the it's it, all the various blah, 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 blahs in them, right, have been used <laughs> up. So then in the middle, like this little honey hole of clear tournament. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you, it, the same thing happens with quartz. Like, so quartz is really well known like i'm sure some of you go to crystal shops and stuff and you'll have like smoky quartz that's like your like a beautiful thing you can find and that everyone prizes that's the same thing it's it's iron rich quartz and when it's that's a trace element because we know that quartz's formula is sio2 but little trace elements of iron will fit its way into that structure under the right temperature conditions like in a pegmatite and so 
also, I, I forgot to mention about that, his other like liquid phases of things can get trapped in crystals and change the colors I like of those. what you see. Well, I like the, I, I don't know, when you, you can actually have like with the phantoms inside quartz crystals where you have like little, yeah. like, where you have like a water, or you can even have petroleum in, trapped yeah, you, up in these. Yeah exactly. yeah, exactly. And that's like like milky quartz and some like late end smoky quartz. So as iron starts to get depleted, it may trap some of those things. Like in, in the pegnotites, you can trap gases and liquids in there and it causes that transition into milky quartz which is like the next stage after iron gets like mostly used up by these quartz tourmalines and biotites. The biotites can grow very large too. Then you get into the milky quartz and then finally in the center, you have your really clear quartz. So it's like, it's like this long race and you know what the end is going to be. It's going to end in these like beautiful, just transparent, crystal clear quartz and other minerals. Barrel can be found a lot with like your really clear quartz or your milky quartz. And it's because it, it's going to crystallize later because beryllium doesn't fit in with a lot of other things. And so it bonds. It's not got a very complicated structure. It's like it's got beryllium, uh, aluminum, silica, and some oxygen and water. So it's going to form there at last stages. It's so incompatible that it stays in the melt until the very end and that's where you get your aquamarines your emeralds and all that will come out yeah barrel, barrel. <laughs> that's my birthstone oh, is it really oh no i, I, I guess aquamarine that's barrel right well, yeah that's barrel yeah and emerald is and, a barrel barrel it is yeah. yeah yeah and i remember at field camp like we were at the pegmatite mine and people were like i got some barrel and it's like we take it over to that one dude that's been working there for like that's course <laughs> <laughs> you just like turn around of course like, it is of course it is yeah <laughs> i got yeah. barrel so but i mean that's i mean that's really cool like i didn't know that is it always going to go smoky quartz milky quartz so i mean where does citrine fit into I all refrain, of that i refrain from saying always <laughs> the geology well typically it, generally like, yeah yeah no you're right but i i did want to point that out like last week i got into it with another geologist because he was like why are you not just taking the model and using that that data to inform your decision? I'm like, because it's a model. Like, I'm not going to say that's always going to happen. One of the most valuable things I learned in field camp was geology just is. So it may not fit into what you've read, may not like make sense. So th- that's why I, I took a little soapbox for a second. Luckily, it's not as bad as the moral. Yeah, that was pretty bad. Uh, I will not get there. Yeah, now. we won't. We won't derail you. And also, we haven't no. been talking for two hours and oh, like God. four drinks yeah. in. <laughs> no, so all but I was yeah. going to. All, all, all I yeah. was going to bring up with it, yeah, so you bring up, so tourmaline, your emeralds, so these are gemstones, and if you, what we've been talking about with the pegmatites is that these grow exceptionally large, so this is where you're going to get some of those, like, really high-carated quality and uh, production of them, even though that these aren't, like, the most common type, but, um, I, and I don't want to say this is where they typically find. Yeah, a lot of gemstones come from, from pegmatites. A lot of Economic resources come like lithium is one of the major components of a lot of pegmatites. The Harding mine we went to was a lithium pegmatite. So yeah, the, the super, lipidolite. Yeah, yeah, lipidolite. And that's part of the mycophagamine. Yeah, it is, and it's it looks a little different because I I was convinced for a long time that I had lipidolite in one of my samples, and it turned out to be rose rose muscovite, which is still a lithium yeah <laughs> uh, mica, but it's not. Like there's something, I guess, a little tweaked about its structure. So it was really weird. But yeah, lithium is a main thing. So you, we use that for batteries. Like cell phones have a lot of these like very trace trace elements that are found almost solely in pegmatites, and they're mined throughout the nation. We we have a lot of 
lot of our modern society is dependent on things we find in pegmatite. Yeah. So what is it? The in my, in, just in my notes, I was like, uh, let's see. Yeah, the micas. Like, so we were just talking about lipidolite and the the lithium in it. That's part of the mica family, but they're also used in components to make a lot of the electronic devices. And if you think of in your computers or even well, just anything that has it had the circuit boards and then mm. optical filters. There you go. <laughs> Thank you no, oh, for being so weird. <laughs> they, they are weird. Dang it! Which one is but it? Like, I'm just gonna shoot for it. Oh, I picked it right. <laughs> uh, there's mine. Oh, my sound effect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's like we we were going back and forth on like what to, to talk about tonight i was going to talk about ore bodies and metals and all that and i hope we can get to that later but i was like you know what like i haven't got to really talk about pegmatites and it, it really is one of my favorite things in geology because it i i am a collector i have lots of minerals here and james i i will say you have better <laughs> samples than i do and i i'm going to bargain that some of those came from pegmatites they're they're large and beautiful i'm I'm sure they would but i (laughs) i feel like it also highlights the well how it seems like a jumbled mess like when you just look at a rock but it the pegmatite especially the way that how you described it where it's going from where it's being depleted and it's becoming like a finer and purer part of the same mineral since those impurities but those impurities are what gives the gem qualities their their different colors but we can see that it's an ordered fashion so there is some sort of uh rhyme to the reason if you will yeah so i mean i i not just Oh, the, 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 the typical reduction of it's just rocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I'll point out, like, we're, we're going to talk about rock counting later, but we have these, these pegmatites in Texas. And for those listening, you're like, well, I just got a limestone on, on my property. Yeah, you probably do just have limestone. But <laughs> we, do have, we have the Lano Uplift, which is a huge granitic body that cooled well below the surface long ago. But this Really, it, it happened like you had these fissures open up and melt that was super saturated around the Llano area in Texas created these other pegmatites. And we were talking about like crystal sizes. Some of these, like you were talking about the, uh, if you walk around downtown Fort Worth, you can see all like the pink buildings and all the, like it's a granitic slabs on these buildings. I was walking, I moved to downtown recently and I was walking by and I saw these like four inch Orthoclays, well, I guess they're probably microclean because, but anyways, they, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to get it. They were like four inches long. And I was like, what the heck is going on here? So I'm looking like a freaking, a freak standing there. Like I'm pushing in the stroller and I'm like, my eye is like in the wall and I'm just staring at it. Like, why is it like this? And like, then I'm like studying the rest of the melt. And I realized that it was probably part of the initial stages of of being a pegmatite. So it like started accreting some things from the wall, the margin, the chilled margin yeah. and bringing it into the melt. Just a, a fun story. We'll get into the rock counting stuff later where you can find pretty stuff in Texas, but that's pegmatite. Oh, I like pegmatites. Yeah. So I think I, no, I, I, I wish, I wish we had more hard rock geology around, around the area to diversify us. Cause when you do get into the, the rock handling, you'll see, we'll, we'll talk about the, the fossils and, and that's, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and let's not diminish the fact that, oh, it's just fossils. <laughs> right. But it would be it, nice yeah. to find, <laughs> you know, your occasional, I don't know, copper, blah, 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 blah mineral somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, moving on. Okay. So what I wanted to talk about first, uh, my, my, I guess, 
what I'm going to bring up is the Coriolis effect. And I'm sure a lot of us, we've heard of the Coriolis effect, but we're kind of iffy on what it actually means. Some of you may think, oh, it's because of uh, the Simpsons. My toilet will, <laughs> will swirl a certain direction versus another one. Or if you go step on either side of the equator, that it's going to automatically cause water to drain out a certain way. So what I wanted to it do... Was, do that. No, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, you you have you have people at at the equator that will sort of like I guess as a as a ploy to get money from tourists that they're like, oh, okay, well, watch it spins this way. Now let's go no step way. on the other side of the equator and it's gonna randomly just start <laughs> spinning the other way. No, so what's happening there is they are cleverly inducing some sort of vorticity to it to cause it to do that because what we're like grading the slope or something yeah the effect at the equator is i guess it's it's not as pronounced as it would be at the poles Mm -hmm. so just by definition of the coriolis effect so it's basically just any type of effect or it's not any type it is an effect whereby a mass moving in a rotating system is going to experience this force that's acting perpendicular to the direction of the motion and to the axis of the rotation. So we'll unpack that, okay? On the Earth, there the effects tends to deflect objects to the right in the northern hemisphere and to the left in the southern hemisphere. Think of hurricanes or we think of tornadoes. They have a counterclockwise direction to them, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, maybe. Yeah. No. No. They, no. They do. So they they spin counterclockwise, and and the way and why they do that is due to the Coriolis effect. So this this idea of this of this phenomenon is it's going to affect weather patterns. It affects ocean currents and even air travel. In the simplest of simple explanations, I wrote this in my notes. Exactly. Simplest of simple <laughs> explanations. Since the Earth is round, right? So we think think about the ra- the roundness of Earth and the equator is going to be is it's a lot larger of an area earth is not a a round object it's more of a uh, spheroid so it's it's it bulges at the center so it's moving faster that and that's the key thing is that it's moving faster than at the poles if you take a windmill if you will or those those wind turbines you know what i'm talking about brian out if you go anywhere where the the yes. those huge things right so they're 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 spinning around so they have Build all the birds yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh speak we didn't even say did you vote <laughs> i did vote yeah i voted I too okay so we awesome. hope all of you out there y'all need to get out there and vote and uh, please, please. <laughs> we won't we don't have to be political <laughs> yeah so sure. yeah so <laughs> the the windmills think about it okay each one of those blades on the, the three blades, so they're they're spinning with respect to one another. They're spinning with the same angular velocity, but at the center, it doesn't it doesn't have to move as much around yeah. uh, as as you go outwards to the outside. the The amount of distance that it has to travel is a lot greater, so it's it it has to cover a greater distance. Yeah, because like mass times acceleration, right? Like so, you like for force. So you have this large body. You need more acceleration to keep that force up to where the other one is like down closer to the center is that am i thinking of that right uh i don't i'm i'm not sure about now now you derailed me brain i don't know what i'm talking about i'm sorry (laughs) i was just i was like i was throwing in a tiny physics point and it didn't work maybe it worked we don't know we don't know maybe maybe so uh, (laughs) i i in the terms that i do know how to describe it so take the earth earth it spins on the axis 
at the North Pole and South Pole once every right. 24 hours. We can think of it in this way. So if, if you were to just take uh, just a, a step to the left, so now that is about, uh, it, it makes a circle, right? So because that point, you're now off that axis. So it, it creates this circumference. So that circumference mm. is roughly about six feet. If there's 24 hours in a day and there being 5,200 feet in a mile, for the amount of time that it takes that little tiny six-foot circle diam- or circumference rise, it's, it's traveling at 0. 0.00005 miles per hour. So that's just if you were just to take a step off from the pole right now, travel down to the equator. Now you have a, a, that, that the circumference of the equator is about 25,000 miles long. Now, if you divide that same distance by 24 hours, now you're talking, you're going close to a thousand miles per hour where you're traveling. So the, the the equator (laughs) is traveling much faster to keep up. So you're going a lot faster. So my question to you, Brian, is with that and the deflections, imagine a non-spinning earth, if you would. And if you were to throw an imaginary airplane just straight to the North Pole, where would the airplane end up? A non-spinning Earth? A non-spinning Earth. It would go to the North Pole. Yeah, yes, exactly. So now, <laughs> okay. okay, so now imagine if the Earth started spinning as it does, so right, so it spins to the right, it has an eastward uh, direction. It's, yeah. you're talking, if it was a wind, it'd be westerly, but... <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Cause it's come, it, it's I messed that up last week. I, I truly messed that up last week. With they what? were like, hey, what, like, we were trying to just, determined fetch of a lake wave interaction over a dam i was like oh yeah it's in a southeasterly like i was southeasterly and they're like what i was like (laughs) well yeah it's like going that and they're like no are you sure oh my god like i just i like just muted myself for a couple seconds and i was like the wind is a westerly (laughs) and i just like shut up (laughs) like after that it's it's counterintuitive yeah no so if people don't know the it's if so if it's you have a uh if a wind is blowing towards the north, you would call it a south wind because it's coming from the south. Right. Yeah. So it, yeah, it's counterintuitive. So okay. So the Earth so, starts spinning yeah. like it does now. So if you were to take an airplane and throw it north, like you would imagine, from Texas, so, from Texas, and so. you were to throw it to the North Pole, where would it end up? Uh, probably along. So I would assume that it would end up like on the east coast of the U.S. Exactly. And that is because you are going faster from where you throw it and it, you're throwing it to somewhere that it's going slower. So it's going to have this deflection to the right. Oh, actually, wild. yeah, it yeah, it's so there's actually two reasons for this phenomenon. So first, it's that the Earth rotates eastward. So I mean, we've we've said that, right? So and the second tangential velocity of a point on Earth is a function of latitude. So those those great circles going up and down. Mm -hmm. So we can also think of this as like if you were to shoot a cannon northward from the the point on the equator, the projectile would land to the east of its due north path. So this variation would occur because of the projectile was moving eastward faster at the equator than was its target further north. I'm trying not to talk fast <laughs> and be, be, be clearer and more articulate. So similarly, if the weapon were fired toward the equator from the North Pole, the projectile would again land to the right of its true path, right? So it's shooting from somewhere slower that's going faster and it's going to deflect it to the right. So in this case, the target area would have moved eastward before the shell reached it because it's greater eastward velocity and exactly similar displacement occurs if the projectile is fired in any direction. 
this has implications when we think of surface currents. So uh, I don't know if we really need to get into all of this. So just think of, okay, but it, but it does. So it, it has a, it's due to that deflection of the wind. And then, so how this uh, is all interrelated is that whenever you have this wind blow across the surface of ocean water, it creates this friction and it brings this water along. So it has implications in uh, your your upwelling and your replacement of nutrients. I I know we've talked about that mm. when we talked about sediments and how yeah. the what is the word I'm looking for <laughs> the the organisms oh the the phytoplankton where they're getting their nutrients is due to that that deflection of the water and that's due to the Coriolis effect. So just briefly, if you were to think uh, the Okay, well, we, we didn't even talk about like how the wind pattern even gets set up. So, so the atmospheric component of it, you have at the equators. No, we've talked about this, right? Where at the equators, it gets warm and the water right or the, the hot air rises. It's a low pressure. Low it's pressure, a, it's yeah. a area of low pressure. And then at your 30 degree latitudes, you have the subsidence of the air and it creates these high pressures. And then at 60 degrees, the same thing. There's a low pressure. And then at 90 degrees at the poles, there's another high pressure. If air moves from areas of high pressure to low pressure so you start getting these this is how we get the 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 trade winds the easterlies start forming um, at the equator is due from at the 60 degree latitudes going to 90 degrees right it's going southward so it deflects to the right and on earth that is it's going to produce an easterly wind that wind is going to the left so from the 60 degrees going up to the what 30 degrees so that's high pressure going to that low pressure zone so then you start getting that westerly movement of wind and it goes that way. But anyway, so what this actually does in terms of surface currents is that it creates up these gyres. You have five of them. So you have the North Pacific, South Pacific, North Atlantic, South Atlantic, and you have the Indian Ocean. You have these subtropical gyres that set up and it creates this surface water or surface currents. And you have these these bounding currents on the east and west. And then you have the equatorial currents and then you have these um these western currents at the at the at the top anyways and then it creates up this ekman spiral we're not going to get into it because i feel like we're just it's it, we're not talking about we're talking about the damn coriolis effect so anyways <laughs> imagine a boat that gets lost out in the middle of the ocean so it would be nice to know how these currents are going where they're going which way they're going to blow because even in these currents that are going you get this deflection of the water too that that deflects to the right and then you get this piling up think of why do you think the the gulf stream in the atlantic ocean is the one of the fastest currents in the world um assume it i don't know i i'm just thinking of like the landform that exists all the way up from the equator it kind of creates this conduit for that I don't know. I, I would think that it's because it's bounded by land on two sides that it would, in close proximity, that it would do that. I don't know. It, it has everything to do with the Coriolis effect. <laughs> it's called, uh, it, I, they call it the Western intensification. Not only are you getting, not only, so imagine if you were to just draw a line with an arrow going to the left, one going up one going to the right and one going down. Well, you still have to, so that's the, the, these little gyres that make these circles, but you're still having this, this right deflection due to the piling up of the water and just the Coriolis effect itself moving the center of this, this body of water that's piling up water due to gravity and whatnot. It's 
pushing it out more on the western boundaries of ocean basins, and it creates these uh, really strong currents going up. And and basically, that's in essence, in short, in this little brief little mini talk that we're having. It's why the you have the Gulf Stream that's so strong. But it takes all that, that warm water up to you know England and Europe and keeps it kind of warm. Well, we get we get battered by hurricanes quite a bit on our our Gulf Coast. I mean, the Coriolis effect has to have an effect on that, right? Okay, so it has it has an effect. So it doesn't have an effect on the hurricane itself. How it affects the way that it it, it turns is again, so the 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 bottom part, the the portion of that storm that is closer to the equator is traveling faster than the the portions higher up. So okay, yeah. so we know that uh, hurricanes they are these intense areas of low pressure. At the center is low pressure and then you have high pressure all around it. If you're having that air move into this area of low pressure, if it's coming from the equator north, it's going to deflect to the right. Now if you have the that portion of the storm that it's the earth is rotating slower, it kind of is lagging behind that low so it deflects to the right, if that makes sense. Oh, so, so now you have yeah, two yeah, opposite. Yeah. So you have two opposite arrows. The this overall net movement of this deflection to the right is what gives it that overall counterclockwise spin. Interesting. Amazing. Yeah. So you're I, like the you're like the sky god. <laughs> no. <laughs> yep. I'm done. With, I'm done with that. Where I've beaten that one with the dead well, horse. That, that, it's really hard. Like I feel like this. I mean, I've I've at least heard that term like since I was a kid, Coriolis effect. But I have not really even understood what it, I don't, I don't, I still don't fully understand it. And I feel like people are still trying to understand its impacts. Like think about bird migration, like insect migration, like moths and stuff. Like I, I feel like um, they may not like inherently know and be able to calculate the effects, but maybe they're tuned in with it. I mean, they have to be able to tell, like if you're flying, from Alaska down to like Southern California, you're a goose. Wouldn't you have to <laughs> have to plan that out? Like you, I, I don't know if they're they're engineered that way. Well, I mean, I so I I feel like uh, with that, it's just the deflection of the wind. Um, I know a lot of these animals don't they have something like magnetic where they can like yeah. orientate themselves yeah. like magnetically with north. So they're just it's like a constant thing. So so just like us, we can't tell that we're traveling at plus 1000 miles an hour right no. like we and so so maybe they're not in tune with that but it just seems like it's another component of our earth that further complicates things <laughs> yeah um, so i mean it just yeah, it's, it's just defl- it's it deflects the wind and like it, in turn it would really deflect anything not anchored to the earth right like any object are we i mean sure. it could i mean well no but like if we're like a small like a saltated like like a, a sediment piece right like I'm thinking like Saharan dust or something so, uh, that like would get thrown up. I would assume that it would be have the implications of of the Coriolis. I'm that I'm not sure of because I know when it comes to wind, it's like whenever you get these geostrophic winds where they're they don't where they start flowing uh, directly parallel to the or perpendicular to the that pressure gradient force. So it has to do with like this. So the 
areas of low pressure to high pressure. That's the way that uh, this fluids move, right? Or the the air moves. So whenever mm. it, it's it's counteracted by the Coriolis effect is when it starts blowing uh, geostrophically, which is where you get like these straight east winds or west winds, where it's like okay. ge- it's geostrophic flow, where where it starts flowing along a pressure gradient. Because usually, like it's deflected to the right, but then eventually it it, it counterbalances out due to this uh, the the Coriolis effect counteracts that pressure gradient force. So I'm not sure. At, and then I know as you get closer to the surface, it starts, uh, you start, it, 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 you have to add in a third component, which is friction. So that, uh, oh, yeah. it can okay. get, it can get further. So, and aloft, I'm, I'm just strictly talking about, it's all of this, uh, flow of, I was just talking about air and then. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Like I, I, because I'm, I'm very foreign to this. I just, this is very fun. Because I I didn't know a lot of these things uh, and the, and the implications they had on on us and where we are on the globe really cool. So are you teaching oceanography next semester? Because I could just be a professional audit on the class. No, oh no, I, <laughs> I, I, teach, learn I, I teach it. I teach it uh, twice every semester. I've been okay. Re- yeah, so I'm a. Well, I'm you more, need an auditor, please uh, <laughs> contact me. No, <laughs> you ask all the hard questions, and I. No, I will be sorry. <laughs> no, so like no, but I guess you're right. So when I said the definition is where any mass, it says mass moving in a rotating system experiences a force uh, acting. Yeah. Per- so I guess if it's acting perpendicular. But I guess you have to offset it with uh, friction and gravity and all of that other stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, like, but and then also, it it it's such a, it doesn't it's not going to uh, it's not going to move it alone. If it, it's it's a, such a, it's a small it acts it exerts itself in in small way. That's what I was saying. So whenever it's when you have these people with. Uh, the the toilets. So when we think of the toilets, <laughs> it's it's uh, oh yeah, hold yeah. on. Uh- so so the toilet so that's what we're most familiar with is 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 the toilets again toilet yes (laughs) so it's it that it's it's not enough to make the the toilets because what's happening there is you're in you're inducing vorticity by based on the way that that water is being shot in so you can have toilets in North America that will drain to the right and to the left. You can induce vorticity in your sink whenever you drain it to flow a different way. So it's not oh, a sh- it's not going to be a strong enough force to where you're going to be like, uh-huh, the Coriolis effect, right? It's, but it's something that we do need to account for because you can see it in the storms. You can see it in the tornadoes. And it, I, so I, you can see it in the, especially in the oceans. We didn't talk about it, but you do get this deflection of, Due to the wind and the Ekman spiral, it has actually, it has a net movement of 45 de- or 90 degrees to uh, the, the direction of the wind. So, so the, the deeper you go in the water, the less the effect too. Yeah, because you're getting that friction that slows it down yeah. and it creates a spiral. But if you have mm. if you have wind that's blowing north across the shore, it's the, the net effect of it is actually going to be 90 degrees uh, I mean, if you're in the northern hemisphere, it's going to deflect it. The water 45 degrees or 90 degrees to the right. So like it, it, the, it actually is like, so whenever the wind is blowing, your ship starts moving about 45 degrees. All right. So at the surface that, that movement, the wind is blowing straight north, right? And you're in the water, it deflects it. Actually, you would actually go northeast. You'd be at like, a, if north is zero degrees, your net movement at the surface would be about 45 degrees. But if you were to take the whole water column, or I guess the, the, 
all the way until it starts moving the opposite direction, the, the total net movement is would be due east. So the if the wind goes to the north, uh, the water and the net movement would be to the east. So it has implications for that. So you have upwelling and downwelling and whatever. So Jesus. that is enough for the Coriolis <laughs> effect. That is like mind blown. Sorry. I just, yeah. Like, so I mean, I mean like, yeah, it, 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 however you want to take it, there's, there's different implications and different applications. It's cool. Okay. So our planet is awesome. Yeah, it really is our big split spinning planet. All right, so rock hounding. Oh, man, I feel grounded now. I'm more comfortable. We're back to the earth. <laughs> <laughs> Something I understand a little bit better. No, I, I really, I, I honestly appreciate you bringing up these topics because I'm, I'm so immersed in just what, like, like traditional geology that I, I don't think about the atmosphere component. And so that, that's really cool. And if you do not take me seriously on the audit thing, I'm going to be upset. So. <laughs> okay, well, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> no so rock hounding i didn't even put this in the notes but what is rock hounding james how would you how would you describe rock hounding i would say it is a group of enthusiasts that like to go to these they they try to find or i don't know if they really compete against each other but i know that they're very secretive whenever they find a good spot but it's these enthusiasts <laughs> these enthusiasts that go out and look for rocks and minerals and fossils, right? Yeah. So like are we like basically stamp collectors? Is that like a glorified thing? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean I guess it's any kind of like enthusiast like collector yeah. type person, <laughs> but it's just a little bit more involved. But I think would you classify all rock hounds as geologists or are all geologists rock hounds? I feel like at the surface that question is simple, but if I really got into it, I could say, well, everybody is a geologist if they care about what the earth is made of and they take time to learn a little bit about it. Okay, no. maybe. But no, <laughs> I like I do believe um, and maybe it's because I had to take time in my life to figure out what I wanted to do, spend time in painful studies at the University of Texas in Arlington and learning all this stuff with you. Um, I, I don't think everyone can just be called a geologist. So, But anyone can be a rock hound. Anyone can be a rock hound. So there is a difference. A rock hound to me is very much about finding things, about collecting. A geologist is more about understanding why it's there and how it's there. Exactly. The process. I will say that does not denounce rock hounds and their knowledge. I've met rock hounds that have taught me a lot. They've, they know where to look. They're like in their metamorphic phases and like uh, regional metamorphism. They'll be like, okay, well we're starting to see this mineral. I bet garnet like within a half mile, whatever. And like, so they've, they've taught me a lot. So People tend to specialize, right? Like they, they latch on to one thing they really like and they set out to, to discover more of it. Like uh, there's a geologist I work with and she has a friend that uh, she was helping. I think she was like watering their plants while they're on vacation. She's like, you got to come over here and check out their fossil collection. I'm not kidding. There were like at least 10,000 fossils in this house. What? <laughs> yes. And, and like, I was like, okay, like, she warned me before I went, she was like, this is going to be a little overwhelming. Not only were there 10,000 fossils in the house and outside in the backyard, but they were sectioned off. So they had tables full of echinoids, tables full of cephalopods, tables full of gastropods, 
and it's all like just from our area here in DFW. Just our area. Just DFW. Just like even Fort Worth, Tarrant County. Man, let us have um, some of them. That's what I, and she's told this person that she said, Hey, like you're collecting so much that you either need to donate the stuff to a museum and stop or like start being a guide and letting other people <laughs> take part. Because I, I kid you not, man, like I walked in, I was like, okay, like there's not even a place to live a normal life <laughs> in this house. There, there's not like, I, I'm not kidding. The entire thing is filled with tables. It is their primary residence and they, uh, yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, good on them though. I mean, they, yeah, I'm sure they have some good, good samples in there. Cause I mean, anything that I've done in the area, there's, I've found very few, like I, I, we'll, we'll get into it. So anywhere. So let me, let me ask you, speaking of that. So can I go rock hounding in my area? You absolutely can. Um, yes. And you know that, but <laughs> but that was a great question to ask because there's people that that I know that that listen to our podcast and that are from this area, and they're like, oh, well, look, where do you find this stuff? I'm like, I just literally walk out my door. <laughs> I may drive five minutes, or I may just walk down to the river, the Trinity, um, and you look in our our bedrock. So there are levees are obviously man made, whatever. But if you find a natural cut of rock. That is usually like uh, in this area. Like, would you say like early Cretaceous, like early to mid Cretaceous? I would. I would say that's in a fair assessment. Yeah, yeah. And you can find a plethora of shallow water, so shallow marine fossils. So I'd say probably like ten meters or less of water. So we're like pretty close to like the the shore, but you're not going to find a lot of. I haven't found a lot of reef fossils, like so much of. No, you don't. I haven't, I haven't, yeah. no, like the corals I've never or any found of that. coral up here. No, and no. I don't, and I don't think it is. Yeah. And maybe. I think that, and, and maybe, so maybe we're off by like an order of magnitude on the depth. Maybe we're more like a hundred meters or so. How, how big was the, the great Western seaway? Uh, the massive, like, like deep, it's deep, oh, like I, deep. I, that I, I don't know. I, but you do see kind of like the, um, the fringes of it, that, that's what the, what the Capitan mountains over in, um, in El Paso, yeah. all of that, that's like, you can see that was all a coral reef. Yeah. That, and Massive. you also have it, um, if you're looking for like reef fossils in Texas, I would head down to like Canyon Lake area, a little west of New Braunfels. They have like, these are famous fossils from around the world. They're type, not type locality. Is that correct? Like paleo term. You have like your, your index fossils and your type locality. Texas is particularly down there in the Glenrose Formation. You have large foraminifers called Orbitulina tectona. Those are really shallow water forams. And you have rudest coral reefs. And I've done a lot of mapping of these things. And there are these bivalve corals that would come out and like create these horned coral really long like some of them are like maybe even a foot long corals and you can just see them in the strata you'll have like this mudstone or like i guess it would be more of a a wax stone or something and then you would have this coral squirrel section then it'd be buried or whatever so you have in in your marine deposits your limestones look for changes in bedding look for like what might what might be a, a contrast like an erosional surface or something yeah, where you go and, from kind of like a shale to a marl. 
<laughs> I'm kidding, Brian. I didn't mean Take that. It. it could be immoral. It could, but no. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but yeah, you're you're right though. Like when you see like little shaly layers, and then you see like more structure to the limestone, and then you might start to see like a lot of bivalve or like like what we would call like oyster shells, right? Like so, you had where you actually have that is over um, on the west side of. Eagle Mountain Lake. So it's weird. Like our, there's like a, I don't know if there's the way that it's tilted, but the Glenrose formation is uh, exposed out there. And there's a lot of in the, in the limestone that you can go walk the outcrops there. there there's just all of these, these clams. Yeah. And those clams can get pretty big. Like yeah. they're like a good six or eight inches across. Um, I didn't know that was a Glenrose formation over there. So I, th- I think it go. is. Cause I, I'm always like, I'm like always confused about it Cause <laughs> Like just the yeah, because like our whole area is tilted, so we've had uplift like the the layers. We're that, in a basin. Yeah, also. yeah, yeah. Everything dips down once you get like Parker County to Tarrant County. You'll start to see this dip in the strata. It like in it'll go. It'll dip towards the east, and we're in like the Fort Worth Basin. I think it's literally called that. No, yeah, um, it is. Yeah, and so yeah, you'll see that. You also see some sandstone up there in Eagle Mountain Park. And so you can you can literally walk through the deposition. You can see, hey, we have I have river or I have at the lower depth I'll have a river facies. So meaning that you have a lot of river deposits. There's quartz sandstones. And then as you go up, you have the more ch- like chalky limestones. And then you have the fossil reef, which maybe it's not a reef limestone, but you have the the mollusk. Yeah, they're all over the place. But that's so. I mean, like, so, but it's so strange. Like, even in such a, a small area, you get such this uh, vastly amount. Because I was going to say, some one of my students they they uh, they told me about this. I, I need to take you to it, to Brian, because I, I found this 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 ammonite that you can see. Because most of the the crap that you find at uh, Benbrook Spillway, most of that stuff there is it. It lacks any kind of like I guess I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. Like clarity. It. it like all the structure, it seems like it's been eroded away and just filled in with uh, this muddy kind of chalky. It's more like a cast at that point almost. Yeah, but like, so th- my students, they told me about this place in this uh, this river because they're doing some sort of construction. And But I, I got a ammonite from there and you can you can see it, like the the shell of it. You can see the, the sutures of it. Oh, wow. And I was like, yeah. oh my. So once I started cleaning it off, I was like, oh my goodness. And, and not only that, they were the, uh, what is it? The Macaster? Which one is the one that, I mean, these things, I, I, I went in the middle of the summer and it was humid and I felt like I was like a die. I could only take about like five of them because <laughs> they were so big. Like they legit, oh, they weighed wow. like 40 pounds, 50 pounds. And you're trying to carry them through this, this, uh, this riverbed and then up. Yeah. I don't know. It just, I remember like almost feeling like I was going to die picking these things up, but I'll send you a picture of yeah. it. Dude, they were Please. freaking amazing. We need to go there and, uh, when it's not cold outside. Yeah. Um, I agree. Like in that, that's pretty cool because the large ammonites that I found, the big cephalopods, they are mainly in like a shale. So that's, that's an important thing also is after it's been buried for a long time, it depends on what, what rock type it is. Like if you have a more massive limestone or if you have a shaley limestone or shale, a calcareous shale, it's going to start like as it gets pressure on it, right from being buried for so long with other sediments then when it gets lifted off of the overburden pressure is relieved and so you're gonna have rebound and so rebound is going to occur massively on the bedding plane of whatever rock 
type that is. And a shale, like a lot of the spillways that I go to downstream of the actual engineered structure, is shale. And it'll break even the fossils along that because it's been possibly recrystallized over time. And so that those crystals will grow along bedding planes. And so I, once I, it was probably like a two foot in diameter cephalopod that I took out of Granger Dam spillway. I was so proud. I completely was like, I'm not really working right now. I'm just digging up fossils, <laughs> but I didn't care. And no one else cared because they're like, oh my God, that's amazing. And I picked it up and it just shattered. Oh my goodness. I know. After like all that time. So like, yeah, you can find a lot of cool stuff near calcareous shales, but be very careful. Don't try to just trim the bottom of the fossil. Trim out a good section of the shale. No, oh, yeah, because another one at a uh, Benbrook spillway, not on the yeah. right one, the main one, but if you go off to that left side where the little bit unbeaten path, like I found yeah. this awesome ammonite as well. And like you were saying, it was like the shaley portions and I dug all around it. And then, I mean, it was, it, it had the ridges, the cast had the ridges, but it was nothing like the, the one I was talking about earlier where you can actually see the sutures on like the, the substrate, but you could see the, the, the individual changes chambers of this ammonite and then i pull it out and then it just it, it legit just crumbled like <laughs> like baked, so baked powder and i was like oh my god i'm the only one in the world except for that ammonite that knew that that ammonite was ever a thing yeah and now it's completely gone. It'll be washed away in the next rain cycle. Gosh. So that so that's a good place. That's where I go. So every time, like I so I've stopped getting or uh, looking for anything other than the sand dollars, the echinoids, the little uh, sea urchins. Yes. That's all. Whenever Benbrook. I go, out, whenever I go to Benbrook Spillway, that's all I look for now. I have, I think I'm up to like 150 in total. Oh my gosh! Wow. And you can find really or ornate ones there with like little like bumps all over them that are like the actual no. Oh, yeah, I, I have I have a few of those where you can see the where the the spicules used to be on. Yeah, it's so crazy. Benbrook's a really good spot. Um, Mustang Park is another place. So there's a a small creek that's been cut there, and if you go in there, like I was doing a geochem study there, and I was with this environmental engineer, and he was like, "All right, yeah, I guess we're about done." And I was like, "No, we're not. Come with me." And so we, we went down in this creek. He's like, I can't believe you get to do this. Like, this is so awesome. I'm like, yeah, like, this is like why I don't take a lunch so that I can just goof off for the rest of the day and look at fossils. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like Mustang Park is a huge place for echinoids. So if you, I'm I, sure you've been there, but. No, um, I haven't. Where's Mustang yeah. Park? Um, I think that one, if I'm thinking right, is on the southeast side of the lake. Like if you're looking, I'm trying to think, like if you're looking downstream, it'd be on the right side of the dam, like around the corner. But there's also one on the extreme south side. There's a there's a creek down there that also has lots of echinoids. Benbrook, yeah, like I think that's the Goodland limestone formation and that's just filled with these things. Early Cretaceous, I think it's like maybe it's Aptian or Albion Age. I always get, I, I, and I feel like whatever report you get to will also give you a different name of all the different... <laughs> Like, I feel like oh, it's, yeah. they're all like, I've, I've heard the Goodland limestone, the Fort Worth limestone. Oh, yeah. Because I know. Well, we, and yeah, they, they have like, so the way we define it, like in the government, is that we, we look at the Goodland and it's based on not only like 
stratigraphically and fossil assemblages, but on strength, you can also tell where the strata changes. So we we usually typically put the Goodlands down below where the Duck Creek and yeah, Fort Worth Creek. are in the Kiamichi. Kiamichi's also, all those can kind of be undivided, but Goodland is separate. Okay. Um, than those, yeah. Awesome. So, it's complicated. If you're a young geologist trying to make sense of Fort Worth and Dallas, it can get a little weird because we're all dealing with marine to like shallow marine deltaic formations. It's hard. And but then, that also leads us to where you were saying earlier that we mainly have like in North Texas, just rock hounding is going to be mainly fossils with the exception of the woodbine formation. Yeah, which, you can if find you, some of that calcium sulfate exactly the selenite gypsum you'll go pay a pretty dollar for that at a crystal shop or you can just go to grapevine lake or in arlington and look in the shale bed and you'll see this stuff that's just littered all over the place and it looks like glass it's actually a mineral and it's called selenite it occurs in like lagoonal environments yeah we we do have other stuff other than just and you can find that you can find that (laughs) i know there's what a couple parks in arlington that yeah that after a good rain that you can see it just glisten yeah it's pretty cool so rock hounding other stuff in texas one of the the big things i want to talk about was back to pegmatite because we have them here we have them in the big lano area of texas which is basically the center of texas you have this big uplift enchanted rock is part of that if you've never been there i really recommend going it's this granitic lacolith part of the larger Baffleth. God. <laughs> did we already go through those? I think <laughs> No, we did. Because I, really I remember okay. I was like, oh man, well, uh. <laughs> yeah. It, I'm not going to go there yet. Well, it's igneous intrusion body. <laughs> yeah. But the pegmatites occur at the margins as before or in fractures. And they'll be either pegmatitic dikes or they'll occur on the edges. And in Mason, I am going to be planning a trip there next year. And if you want to go, you can go with me. We but, can do a pod. Um, Let's do a podcast from out there. Oh, gosh. Yes. That would be amazing. Yeah. You go out there and you can go on multiple ranches have this in Mason. You can find topaz. And not just any like regular clear topaz. It's Texas topaz, Texas world famous. Topaz. Yeah, and it's blue. Um, I'm not sure. I'm guessing iron has something to do with that. Potentially sodium uh, can do a blue color. Like sodalite is a blue mineral that's uh, sodic and it hey. usually infiltrates what? Hey, hey Brian, what? I, got, I got a question for you. What, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> what do you call a fish that's made up of two sodium ions? I don't know. I know it's going to be something terrible. It's a tuna fish. Ah. Uh. <laughs> wow yeah, I haven't heard that one I, I, I must say <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh we derailed <laughs> yep. fish. yeah no so like yeah. can't you also find the topaz I know I, I know Mason is, is good for that but some like in some parts of the Brazos or is that part of it that goes down like crazy um I, I would think that would be too far north but if you can find topaz there that It'd be interesting to compare the two, but that topaz, because it's pretty durable, could travel a very long way. So, but I, guess I don't know. It like, wouldn't, yeah. If it's if okay, never mind. It could be coming from like um, Oklahoma. Yeah, uh, like they have some some pegmatites up there too. So it could be traveling a long way and be sedimentary at that point. But this topaz is in the rock mass in the pegmatitic body. 
and it occurs with really beautiful, large emerald green fluorites. And so that I probably didn't mention this early at the end of pegmatitic uh, magma, you'll have um, fluorine rich fluids. And so that's where you'll get your, your um, flora appetites, your fluorites. And those will, those will um, go into where like there's cavities in the pegmatite mass. And that's, I think it's called like Mariolitic. Yeah. Cavity bearing. Mariolitic pegmatites. And so you'll have these cavities that are filled in. You can tell that they kind of grew in this one selective space. Um, But you can find fluorite. You can find zircon, smoky quartz, cats that are meowing in the background, that too. Um, But yeah, all all those. We can find beautiful stuff in Texas without driving down to Mexico. Um, Just watch out for rattlesnakes. Yeah, no, because I've I mean, like I've heard like whenever you, I'm at a, a rock shop and they're like, "Oh, fluorite from Mexico," like the location in Lex- Mexico. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you can find that stuff. Um, I'm actually planning a somewhat of a rock sounding trip, combining it with a family vacation uh, coming up in November. I'm going to go to the Diamond Mine in Arkansas, and then I'm also going to go look for some really nice smoky quartz up there. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And, and isn't in a, uh, never mind. Maybe. What am I talking about? Oh, bauxite. There, there, there's a place called oh, bauxite yeah. in Arkansas. Go find that, yep. that limonite. Oh, gosh. The ugly rock, which is, it's not a mineral, right? It's like, no, not I, even... oh, uh, maybe. But I thought we learned it in mineralogy, not petrology. We did. Like bauxite. But it's that yeah, aluminum but... something. But it's, but it's the limonite. That's the way that it, like, uh, I don't know. It not that the the replacement or how it just like Yeah, exactly. So anyways, but that's Yeah. That's cool. No, uh so what's the coolest uh thing that you found out and about doing your your, your things? Mm, I did find some barrel in Colorado. What so Aquamarine. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Um but other than that, like I still hang on to my spodumine from Harding Mine. I think that one of the coolest minerals I have is I don't have really other than the uh, lapidolite rose mica, like the lithium bearing pyroxene to me is really cool. Um, that and the uh, kyanite. Oh yeah. I the kyanite, the, the kyanite though. That's up that, in the pickeries. <laughs> yeah. I th- that's what, um, ruined my first rock hammer. Like you don't, I didn't yep. think about it, but <laughs> the quartz is harder than my, uh, my rock hammer and it doled out the, the pick end of it trying to get out. Yeah. that kyanite. But we, we stayed there a while and everyone else was like, let's go. Yeah, no, <laughs> like, I was nope. <laughs> Dude, so the, the coolest thing, one of the coolest things that I found, uh, was actually at field camp. It was a, it was a fossil in a shale of a fern and it, and it was about the size, oh, wow. it was about the size of my hand and, and it was from Pennsylvanian age. So what, that's closely like 300, 280, 280. 300, yeah. but I mean like something that old, and then wow. I remember I had another one that was bigger and someone stepped on it and I was very mad. What? And then over where did you find those? Well, I forget the, the, the activity that we we're doing, but we were doing, so where we, the first place that we were at field camp after it was not when we would go out. It was when we went up through that, that, that town in the mountain. And then we drove yeah. up, we drove up and then we were doing that kind of, uh, I don't know what the hell we were doing, but we were up there and it was only for a little bit. And 
just digging around and I got these really cool uh, ferns and throughout the years, like as like gifts to like, uh, you know, like your nieces and your nephews <laughs> and, yeah. and just traveling back and forth. Like I just have a very little bit of an amount, a, amount of it left. And let's see the other cool thing again, was that, was that ammonite fossil that, uh, that has like the suture marks and then, uh, the story that I have, like, I know we're talking about rock hounding. So when I was in Colorado last summer with my, with the, with the family, uh, I read in this book and when we did something, we went to, we went to the Colorado Springs and I saw in a book is like, Oh, this is a good place to go look for. There's a pegmatite vein. So I was like, so I was just like, <laughs> they're like, it's off mile marker, blah, blah, blah in blah, blah, blah. So I just started driving and then I started driving. <laughs> and so about, two hours. <laughs> I don't know if it was two hours, but it was about an hour and a half that everyone was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'll know it when I see it. I'll know it when I see it. Right. So then we just keep driving and I'm like, was that it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and then I was like, I'm like, okay, keep in mind this spot. So then we started driving into like a state park and I was like, maybe if we get to the base of this mountain and apparently humans are terrible at judges of like how thing, far things are away. So then I just started <laughs> driving to the state park and like, I'm never getting to the base of this mountain. So then uh, I drive back and we find, I found some micas that were probably, I don't know, nine inches. Um, wow. Kind of like pretty big, but they, but they were so weathered and crumbly. So, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't worth it. Like all that, uh, but it was, I don't know, right at the edge of like, it seemed like there was metamorphism and then there was like this pegmatite uh, kind of like vein. Yeah. Which so, could have occurred from the pegmatite. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, like Who the knows? thermal alteration. Like, uh, but yeah. but anyway, so that's that's my Colorado rock hounding. Um, I just mainly stick right. here. I take I take people. Um, I usually have my class like um, whenever I teach uh, historical geology is that we'll go out to Benbrook and then I'll have them uh, find at least like five different fossils. I mean, like 10 in total, yeah. but at least five different types of organisms. Cause that, it, that's not too terribly difficult to do out there. And then yeah, the other, the other place that's really cool, I think is uh mineral wells. Cause I, I think once you start going uh, West, there's like a fault line and then you're into uh, much older strata than you are here and it's different. And then yeah. you can find, uh, I found at the Western, not the, what am I? Western, blah, 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 uh, the, Mineral wells, like I, f I found like a, a, what is it, the spear ferrita that uh, really ornate oh, type yeah. of brachiopod. That was really cool. And then yeah, those I, are beautiful. And then I thought like I found a, Yeah, I thought I found a trilobite, but it ended up being like some kind of like, I don't know, uh, like seed pod. <laughs> <laughs> After I was like, this is yeah. a trilobite. And I held on to it for like six months. But then I started looking at it. I'm like, this, this is like a plant seed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, dude i've done that i've obsessed over a fossil until i can figure out what it is i'm like i have no idea and i'm going through the literature i'm like on forums on reddit like what the hell is this i'm not a paleontologist like it's it's fun so oh, it, it is if anyone like honestly like hit us up on our instagram like if you have questions on places to go um or whatever and we can i mean i'm always personally i'm down to be a guide on a a little hike or whatever so no that would, that'd be cool too like what if we did yeah. uh it, i don't know if we it's if it's really feasible if it's cold 
but maybe yeah. <laughs> maybe just do a like because this thing that I have, but we can go do a podcast anywhere as long and I can do I have, I have power in 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 the in the runner. We can go out yeah. there and do a just a multi part podcast. Sounds good. But speaking of, we might we might run short. Let's how about we call it quits right here, Brian? And then we do we could do like another like mini episode that could maybe yeah. include that freaking rocks. I will record it because I do have that that thing. So oh, yeah. excellent. So we might we might have to skip that one just for the sake of time, sakes okay. of everything. Yeah, and then it will give us more of a because again. So I feel like when we do these ones, everyone out there, we're a little bit less scripted, and we will just. Uh, <laughs> 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 I, but I feel like it's fun. I always have fun doing this. Yeah, it's just a little bit more, I guess, more all over the place and stretches our brains. So we're like, I don't know what, huh? Hey, huh? This is more of the natural Brian and James conversation <laughs> that, that even had the conception of this podcast. Like we would just get together at shows or at a house and a beer and it, it, uh, it usually know, yeah. static geology. Yeah. So, well then, okay. well then let's do that. We could do maybe another episode this week since you're, you're less stressed out. Yeah, I'm down. Let's do it. And then we can catch up on, on episodes. Oh, shoot. I'm trying to get to where we can do this. So anyways, uh, we appreciate all of the listeners out there that do give us the, you you give us the opportunity to invade your earballs, and hopefully you learn something and then hopefully eventually get to the point where you can tell when we are BSing and when we're not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm your host as always, James the Geologist. And I'm Brian Baggin. And we cheers you for, for listening. I got it, Brian. <laughs> so um, until next time. <laughs> oh. You can't hear it in the background. Yeah. Going, <laughs> no. I can now. <laughs> uh. Uh. Thanks again, everybody. Yeah. So. <laughs>